and we're live. Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Well Said, which is a bi-weekly live show where I interview policy experts, commentators, academics, students, activists, anyone who wants to speak on higher education and free speech related topics such as American culture and policy. Um, also, um, I'm sure I've mentioned this before, we have a podcast, Apple, Spotify, Anchor, you can download us on any of the podcast apps and um, you know, give us a five-star rating if you like what we hear, share it with your friends. Today, we welcome Professor Robbie George. Professor George is a McCormick Professor of Jurisprudence and the Director of the James Madison Program in American Ideals and Institutions at Princeton University. In addition to his academic service, Professor George has served as Chairman of the US Commission on International Religious Freedom. He has also served on the President's Council on Bioethics as a presidential appointee to the United States Commission on Civil Rights and as the US member of UNESCO's World Commission on the Ethics of Science and Technology. Professor George is the author of numerous books and essays that focus on the philosophical challenges of morality and ethics, especially in the context of modern society. He is the recipient of many awards and accolades from his peers in the world of academia and critical thought. Professor George, thank you so much for being here today with us. It's a pleasure to be on with you, Sharice. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, yeah. Um, and obviously, we like to do this in person, but you're up, you're up at Princeton, so we're doing it virtual. I know people are really tired of these these Zoom videos, but <laughs> you do what you can. <laughs> well, we're blessed to have them. I mean, during this period when we couldn't uh, get together, it was been it really has been wonderful to be able to talk in this way, and and in some ways, it it means more people can actually zoom in. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Pun intended. I'm sure. <laughs> um, so the topic we're going to be discussing today is: Does academic freedom truly exist? When we look at universities um, around the country, we see that there's something fundamentally wrong. And it's not just one thing. Um, that's the trick, of course, is trying to identify the, the myriad of issues on college campuses. Obviously, with what our organization works on at Free Speech is, you know, students whose free speech rights are violated by unconstitutional policies on university campuses or just kind of self-censorship of students that their speech is chilled because they're afraid to speak up. But there's also the rights of professors, right, and academics. Um, we've seen a number of professors fired for not bowing down to the woke mob and for challenging their students to think outside of the box that is the progressive liberalism box. Um, and, and this is really you know, detrimental, I think, to students' learning and education. But it's also something that I think you know, it does go back, you know, if you look decades ago, there's, we saw evidence of this happening over the last few decades. And it's, I think we're reaching a point where it's kind of the culmination of, of attack on, on uh, academic freedom. So I would really first just to like, like you to start us off with um, just defining what academic freedom is and uh, how it impacts professors differently than students. Well, thank you, Sharice. Academic freedom is the set of rights and liberties that must be in place if, students are to learn and not merely be indoctrinated, genuinely learn. If professors are to fulfill their vocations as teachers and as scholars, pursuers of truth, and if colleges and universities and other academic institutions are to accomplish their mission of being truth-seeking institutions. So what is included in that set? Well. First, and most obviously, the right to think, freedom of thought, the right of students as well as faculty members to think for themselves. If you are being indoctrinated, if you are being force-fed dogma, if you are not thinking, 
then whatever you call that, whatever is going on, it is not education. It is not learning. Uh, I like to say, Sharice, not only is uh, indoctrination not education, mm -hmm. it is the very antithesis of education. Because education is about thinking your way to your beliefs, pursuing the truth by using the intellect, and then appropriating the truth, not simply learning which box to check on an SAT, but actually internalizing, coming to understand the truth, understanding not only that something is the case, but why or how it is the case, and perhaps even learning the deeper uh, significance, uh, perhaps even existential significance of its being the case. And part of that process is also understanding why, in a vast number of cases, reasonable people of goodwill reach different conclusions than the one you reach. After all, we're all fallible. Every single one of us is fallible. fallible. Every single one of us knows that even at this very moment, we have some beliefs up here in our head that are false. And it's likely that those beliefs uh, include not just trivial and superficial matters, but important matters. Now, of course, we don't want to have those false beliefs. We want to believe what's true. But how are we going to get from false beliefs to true beliefs? How are we going to swap out those false beliefs? Only if we allow ourselves to be challenged and we challenge ourselves, in part by considering the reasons that have led other reasonable people of goodwill to different conclusions, rightly or wrongly, to different conclusions that we've reached. So the first item in the set, freedom of thought. Then, of course, there is freedom of inquiry. Not only thinking, you've got to be able to inquire, to develop lines of uh, investigation, to try to figure out the truth of the matter. And not only to inquire, uh, but to speak. Freedom of expression to say what's on your mind, say what you think you've discovered, raise questions, question even the dogmas of the, of the field, and, and any field will have its, uh, will have its dogmas. Uh, and then, of course, there's the, the, the freedom to publish, to publish one's findings without fear of being punished, retaliated against, even if one's findings are considered by other people to be wrong, even to be radical, even to be unjust, or you, you attach whatever label you want to it. Professors can't do their jobs as scholars. Universities can't pursue their missions as truth-seeking institutions unless people are free to speak their minds, even when the conclusions they reach upset people perhaps because they're, they're wrong and others know that they're wrong. And yet, because we're all fallible and what we think might be wrong might actually be right, we need to be open to being challenged. We can't be punishing people for publishing their thoughts, even if we find those thoughts um, uh, scandalous. Same with the teaching mission of the university. A good professor, one who really understands academic freedom and is committed to it, will never indoctrinate his students. That professor is going to provide his students with the, on, on controversial issues, and in almost all fields, they're disputed matters, not just providing information. But a good professor is going to make sure that his student understands the best arguments, the best that has been thought and said on 
all of the competing sides of whatever question it is, whether we're in anthropology, biology, Near Eastern studies, political science, economics, chemistry, whatever it is, to let those students think for themselves. And a critical part of academic freedom from, for students is making sure that students not only are graded fairly, but that they understand that the professor will not punish them when it comes to grading for disagreeing with him or disagreeing with her. And then if I can just close this part of my remark, Sharice, it's critically important to academic freedom that students be free, not only of fear of professors retaliating against them, but be free of peer pressure from other students to conform their views to established campus orthodoxies, the prevailing dogmas on campus. John Stuart Mill, of course, the great 19th century philosopher, the author of the work uh, on liberty, uh, goes out of his way to note that uh, we have to fear those of us who believe in liberty, such as freedom of speech, basic civil liberties, freedom of the press, freedom of assembly, freedom of religion. We have much to fear, not only from legal coercion, from the coercion of formal rules, the coercion of law, or the administration at a university, or the teachers, or what have you. We have a great deal to fear, those of us who believe in liberty, from the coercion of public opinion. What we would today call, Mill didn't have this phrase, political correctness. Yeah. Uh, it may be of the right or it may be of the left. Uh, today, of course, so much of it is woke ideology of, of, of the left. But it's, it's pressure of something other than reasonable inquiry, deliberation, understanding, and judgment to reach this position rather than that position. It's, it's pressure to just toe a party line rather than actually thinking about, well, rather than actually thinking. <laughs> Let yeah, me leave exactly. Um, now, you made an, a really interesting comment of um, how universities are supposed to be institutions that seek truth. Um, I want to pull on that a little bit. How has our understanding of universities as an institution changed over time? Um, is it still institutions that seek truth or or is it kind of been perverted a little bit into something something else, something more politically biased? Well, I mean, today, uh, the most prestigious universities, the leading universities uh, have within them uh, trends and tendencies that really concern me. Um, established dogmas uh, seem to be in some of these institutions beyond question or in parts of some of these institutions uh, beyond question. Students really do feel compelled to toe the party line, whatever they might hold in their hearts. Too many faculty members seem to be concerned to make sure their students reach the conclusions that they themselves hold rather than trying to teach their students to think for themselves. In, in the program that I uh, founded and directed at Princeton, the James Madison Program in American Ideals and Institutions, which you were kind enough to mention, Sharice, we, we have a motto. It's a, it's a, it's a three-part motto. And we really try to live by it. We try to encourage uh, other units within the university to, to do the same. And that uh, motto is think deeply, think critically, including self-critically. Yeah. and think for yourself. And in a way, we might say the greatest of these is think for yourself. 
there's some things you can't outsource, right? There's some things we can't out. We can outsource lots of things. We can get IT people to do our tech work. You, you do that. I do that. Uh, we can we can outsource a lot of what we do or, or could do. Let somebody else do it. But thinking is not like that. There's some things you, ha you have to go to the bathroom for yourself. There's just certain things you have to do for yourself. And one of those is thinking. You need to think for yourself. You can't outsource it. Right. And has our understanding of academic freedom and kind of how you defined it, has that changed over time? Um, if it has changed, are the institutions responsible for this? And why would we have been as a society been so willing to accept these changes um, if it's for worse and not for better? Important question, and I'm not sure I really know the answer uh, to it. I, I know I don't have the full answer to it. But my conception of academic freedom, uh, which uh, is embodied uh, these days uh, in what are called the University of Chicago principles, first adopted by the University of Chicago just a few years ago, and then adopted by Princeton. Uh, we were the first to, first to adopt them by vote of the faculty. And since adopted by about 70 or 80 other institutions, but with the vast majority of universities and colleges today still not having adopted them and many failing to adopt them after efforts. But those principles are pretty close to the principles enunciated all the way back in the 19 teens by the American Association of University Professors and in, in, uh, its first uh, foray into trying to design a, a, um, a theory or a code of, of academic freedom. Um, this understanding of the University of Chicago principles is in line with the Kelvin report from years ago from the University of Chicago or the Woodward report from, I believe, 1970s at, at Yale. So in that way, Cherise, things have not changed. I mean, the, the, the partisans of academic freedom like myself, civil libertarians in the academy like myself, have believed what we believe, you know, at least since the 19 teens. And I think I can actually trace it back to Plato's Academy or to Socrates on the streets right. of Athens, uh, insisting on thinking for himself and prodding and poking and challenging other people to think, puncturing the established dogmas, uh, raising the tough uh, uh, questions. That's what I mean by academic freedom. So we've been at this a long time and the meaning of it hasn't changed. The trouble is, of course, there are always people who think the price is too high to pay. The price of freedom is just too high. They fear that unless we conform our opinions to an established orthodoxy, some other important values will be compromised. Uh, communism was a horrible thing. I mean, the death toll of communism surpasses you know, any other ideology known to human history. But some bad things were done in the name of anti-communism here in the United States, including the repression of academic freedom. Some academics were punished because they were suspected of communism or they, they spoke favorably of Marx's ideas or explored Marx's ideas in their classes and so forth. And that was wrong. That was a violation in those days from what was regarded as the right side of the political spectrum of academic freedom. Today, it's racism. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, uh, sexual or gender ideology. Uh, some people think we can't really have true academic freedom. We can't really have freedom of speech. We, we can't have freedom of thought because we need to make sure that everybody conforms their views to the correct understanding of uh, anti-racism or the correct understanding of sexuality or sexual morality. It's just as wrong when done in the name of the left as it was when done in the name of the right and vice versa. It was just as wrong when done in the name of the right as it 
was is today when it's done in the name of the left principled people whatever they their own particular political views and where they stand on the political spectrum i happen to be on the conservative side some of my strongest allies are on the on the progressive side my friend cornell west for example um but principled people need to defend the basic right to think for yourself to speak to inquire to publish to teach to learn they need to defend it for everybody i want to defend it for the folks on the left and they should want to defend it for people like me on the conservative side yeah that's such an important point that i really want to stomp is this this principled aspect of of academic freedom and free speech which is regardless of which side you're on there is still something that you can agree on and that is that everyone has the right or you know the the natural right to to express their um their their thoughts their speech but then also just freedom of consciousness and um, that is just something that's so so vital and important but and you touched on this throughout kind of like how the left and right have shifted on campus um you've got you know with the communists um uh, being kind of shut down on college campuses. Do we think then that this is something that goes back and forth and it's reactionary? You have kind of far right dogmas on campuses, far left dogmas on campus, or is there a prevailing liberal bias on college campuses that um, every now and then is challenged, but it's always going to kind of be the, on the left? Um, yeah. Uh, one of the things that uh, even some of my fellow um, partisans of academic freedom, I think, don't fully understand or haven't fully taken on, to board, on board, is that one of the bulwarks of academic freedom is the presence of viewpoint diversity on campus. Mm -hmm. One of the problems we have today in defending academic freedom, and more generally fulfilling the truth-seeking and teaching missions of, uh, of the university, is that over time there have been fewer and fewer dissenters from the left-wing orthodoxies that have obtained on campuses for a very long time, including back in the 50s and, and 40s and even 30s and, and, and 20s. The pressure on anti-communists was, I'm sorry, the pressure uh, from anti-communists was coming in those days uh, from outside the universities for the most part. The universities in many cases capitulated uh, shamefully to it. Uh, but it was coming from outside. Universities have been on the left for a long time, not forever. There were periods of history, go back far enough, when universities tend to be pretty conservative institutions. The Oxford and Cambridge of the, uh, of the 19th centuries and earlier, for example. But um, they've been in our time and in our parents' and grandparents' time pretty much uh, on the left. But there were always at least a reasonable number, a kind of critical mass of dissenters, no matter where we're talking about with the University of Chicago, Ohio State, Princeton University, uh, University of California. And I think there has been a loss there. Uh, the numbers have fallen. Uh, we could go into the reasons uh, for that. There have been some formal uh, academic studies uh, of the matter, but whatever the cause and whoever's to blame, if there is blame, uh, it's a fact. And the less viewpoint mm -hmm. diversity there is, the more harm to education, the more difficult it is to make sure that we're doing education, not indoctrination, and the greater the threats to academic freedom and freedom of speech and the other components of, of academic freedom. Uh, if we believe in those principles of freedom, then we should very much want to make sure that no discrimination is preventing dissenting voices from gaining positions of uh, standing 
uh, in scholarship and teaching on our campuses. There's an additional um, wrinkle here in the American educational system, and American higher education in particular, uh, that we probably should mention, and, and that is in the United States, and, and I, I think this is historically a fine thing, I, and currently, if I, I don't have any problem about this, but historically in the United States, a great many of our colleges and universities have been religiously based. Their faith, uh, their, right. their faith affiliated uh, institutions. That was true of mine. Princeton uh, University was originally a Presbyterian university, and some of the greatest universities today remain religiously affiliated. University of Notre Dame, um, Brigham Young uh, University, uh, Yeshiva University. These are all uh, universities that continue to be religiously affiliated, and there are some special challenges and issues for the religiously affiliated uh, universities. I, I myself am a religious believer and I'm often invited to speak at um, religiously affiliated institutions, although I've spent my entire academic career as both a student and a faculty member in non-religiously affiliated uh, institutions, but I'm often invited to speak. And uh, my message to them is, is twofold. Number one, it's great for you to maintain and uphold your uh, religious identity that should shape the way you run your institution. But when it comes to speech that's allowed on campus, to the encouragement of freedom of thought, you want to be a university. You don't want to be catechism class. Catechism class belongs somewhere else. That's in Sunday school and uh, maybe in the seminaries, but it's not in university. So if you want to be a university, your norms, while they may differ a little at the edges, from the norms that would govern more generally non-religiously affiliated universities when it comes to academic freedom, they are still pretty much the same norms. So I preach to uh, uh, Yeshiva or, or Brigham Young or, or Notre Dame or Wheaton, or Baylor, uh, University of Dallas, uh, all of these institutions, and I love them and I think they do wonderful work. I preach to them, mm -hmm. let's, let's try to be expansive in our understanding of, uh, of academic academic freedom. Don't be afraid to have dissenting voices from the Baptist beliefs of, right. of uh, Baylor on campus or the Jewish beliefs of Yeshiva or the Mormon beliefs of BYU or the Catholic beliefs of Brigham Young or the evangelical beliefs of, um, of, of Wheaton. Yeah, I mean, you mentioned a couple of examples um, in the past of impediments on academic freedom. And I'm kind of curious, is there ever a legitimate reason to impede on academic freedom? Or do you think that this is something that we need to fully understand about it is that there is no, there's never a legitimate reason. And that's kind of where we'll find it, the purest form of it. Well, freedom of thought strikes me as just an absolute. I just don't think we should ever be trying to manipulate people's thoughts, their minds. Um, I think we need to be presenting people with arguments. We need to reason with people, try to persuade people of some things that we think are very, very important. Uh, you know, but 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 not thought control, not brainwashing, not indoctrination. So freedom of thought strikes me as an absolute. Freedom of speech, uh, strictly speaking, strikes me as a near absolute. Uh, I say near rather than just an absolute, because there are some things that we can say that uh, uh, I think are not protected by academic freedom. They are parallel to the things that we can say that are not protected as general free speech by the Constitution of the United States. So we have from the very, very beginning 
had a strong doctrine of freedom of speech, but uh, the Supreme Court from the earliest period interpreting the First Amendment uh, and without significant objections from the public or otherwise has understood that there are certain forms of speech, there, there's certain speech that is unprotected. They fall into the categories of unprotected speech. For example, threats, defamation, slander and libel, those are unprotected speech. Obscenity, people don't, a lot of people don't know this, but obscenity has never been regarded as protected speech under the First Amendment. There have been interesting court cases about what counts as, uh, as, as obscene. But uh, the definition of obscenity is one thing. The question of whether obscenity is protected is clearly resolved and it's not uh, protected. Um, uh, intimidation, uh, conspiracy, uh, false advertising. <laughs> there are various categories of speech uh, that, uh, that uh, are not protected and they are not covered by academic freedom. Students shouldn't be threatening each other. And that's not academic freedom. Professors shouldn't threaten students or threaten each other. That's not academic freedom. I have no right to defame my I may disagree with one of my colleagues. I disagree with a lot of my colleagues, as you can imagine, being a conservative in Princeton. But I have no right to defame them. And, and academic freedom does not confer upon me or protect any so-called right to defame my colleagues or for them to defame me or to defame each other or to defame our, our students. I mean, it's not protected by academic freedom if I falsely accuse one of my students of cheating on an exam because I, I, I don't like his views or I don't like the color of his hair or what, what, whatever it is. So none of that is protected. I also think, Sharice, that civility properly understood now, properly understood, and we can get into this, civility properly understood is important to the educational process. So the truth-seeking mission of the university does require that there be civility. So I do not believe I'm violating academic freedom. When I tell my students, you can advocate any position you want. Uh, you can argue for it so long as you do so with actual arguments. That is, you do business in the currency of proper intellectual discourse, a currency consisting of reasons and evidence and argument. But what you can't do is call each other names, hmm. hurl epithets at each other, question each other's motives. <laughs> I don't hear that. So I am going to put some put some uh, guardrails uh, uh, up here, but within those guard guardrails, I want the student to say what's on his or her mind, and not only not only that, even if it's not what they actually believe, I want the student to be willing to play devil's advocate, and just see how far a certain point of view can be argued, even if it's something totally opposed to what I believe or other students in the in or students in the class other students in the class uh, um, believe. Students who do that who will play the devil's advocate. They do a great service to their fellow students and to the educational mission, the educational yeah. project. Um, to, we, we have way too much self-censorship going on amongst our students, students, Absolutely. Sharice. Yeah. And this is not just at Princeton. This is throughout the country, throughout the university establishment. Students tell me all the time that they do not say in class what's really on their mind. And not only in class, they don't say in the dining hall, they don't say in the late night bowl sessions. They don't say what's really on their mind because they fear disapproval. They fear being called out on social media, being defamed, uh, having their reputations ruined, having their future educational opportunities or professional careers uh, damaged as a result of uh, things they uh, say that might be unpopular. This is very bad. It's yeah. bad for the educational mission of the university and it's bad for the students. Yeah. I mean, 
you gotta be you gotta be a real person that is somebody who really thinks for himself or herself you cannot allow yourself to be turned into an automaton yeah i really um i like what you said about the devil's advocate um uh, how students can kind of approach arguments from from the alternate side, alternate viewpoints, and try to see how long they can tease that out. Some of the most interesting classes that I took in undergrad, um, we had to, you know, you, we were assigned a topic to debate, and we did not get to choose the side we were on. That's so right. that, yeah, and it was really wonderful. It really forced us to like adamantly argue, not just because you wanted to get a good grade. So you're not just saying like, well, here's the other argument. You're not just presenting it plainly, but you're trying to adamantly argue for it and put yourself in that mindset and the perspective of someone who really does believe those things. Um, and it, it really allows you to kind of manipulate the subject matter in your own mind and, and truly understand it um, when you look at all the different angles. I mentioned John Stuart Mill earlier. Interestingly, my own academic career uh, has been in a lot of ways uh, that of a critic of John Stuart Mill. I've, I've long been a critic of Mill's utilitarianism and right. important aspects of Mill's libertarianism. But I do think he's a great theorist and right on the mark when it comes to uh, freedom of speech. The second chapter of the book on liberty uh, is, I think, a wonderful account of the moral basis of freedom of speech, but I bring him up again because he said something that's relevant to what you just reported from your own experience. And I would commend this thought to absolutely everybody who is uh, watching us today. Um, Mill said, a person who knows only his own side of an argument doesn't even really know that. Right. And that is so yeah. true. Very true. Absolutely. You gotta understand why reasonable people of goodwill disagree with you in order to really understand your own position. You need to know why they disagree. You need to know why you disagree with them, not having set up some straw man version of their case, but having confronted the best that is to be said on the opposing Absolutely. side. And I think something I that tell, I can often tell Sharice uh, whether a professor um, is really doing education or is doing an indoctrination without even having to step foot in the classroom and listen. All I have to do is look at the syllabus. Huh. That's uh, sometimes you'll see a syllabus, including on, on course topics that are hotly debated, you know, contemporary issues. And some, very often, surprisingly often, I'll see a syllabus and it's all one side. <laughs> You're only seeing one side. Mm -hmm. uh, or, and this is really just as bad, uh, there's a false uh, balance, a false fairness. On oh. one side are very strong, powerful uh, readings, and on the other side are the weakest caricature uh, uh, readings. Uh, the, the professor has obviously been careful to avoid exposing students to really compelling authors and thinkers on the side of the question that's not his own. Yeah, that's actually a really good point. I remember um, actually as in a grad school class, um, it was on the kind of extreme, the class was on extremism and terrorism. And one thing we were looking at was um, one, of, one of the parts on the, the books that was uh, assigned on the syllabus was, which I thought was interesting, was um, key thinkers on the far right. And so when we got to that point in the, in the class to discuss that, I looked through the key thinkers in the far right and I was like, wait, some of these are just, conservatives. <laughs> I don't I don't actually consider some of these names people on the far right. They're actually just kind of what you would consider like kind of academic conservatives, people who've been around a while, spoke on these things for a long time. Um, and I thought 
I was the title of the book is like key thinkers of the far right. And I was like, we're not actually given the books by those thinkers, right? We're not given. So for example, Richard Weaver was, um, was in that book. He was, listed he in was book. considered far right. Yeah. Yeah. And I thought that was really interesting because I was like, okay, it has its own description of who Richard Weaver is and what he believes, but how come we're not assigning the book ideas have consequences or oh. on tradition, you know, like any of these, how come we're not assigning actual work of Richard Weaver? If we want to understand what's considered to be the far right, it's because it, it would present too good of an alternate argument. It, it does show you how parochial uh, academia can be or the general elite intellectual culture. Yeah. That some people really seem to think that, well, yes, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, she is a person on the left or the center left. Uh, and then there are centrists and sort of um, center right people like Joe Biden and Nancy Pelosi. And then there are extreme right wingers like uh, Marco Rubio or, or Ron DeSantis. They actually see the world this yeah. way. <laughs> Yeah, no, that's, that's it's amazing. just parochial. I mean, it's it's it's. I mean, they don't realize how <laughs> backward that is. And, right. And, you and know, it's, it's the fruit of just talking to people you agree with all the time, living yes. in a little part of the world that just doesn't see that it's a big old world out there. It's really interesting. There are lots of people with lots of different. Absolutely. Points. Yeah, and I think the people. I think outside of the world of academia. Um, people really do see this and, and, and they notice and they take note of it because, um, for example, I think it's evidence in your, the popularity of your debates with Cornell West among students, but then people outside of the academy that shows that people really are kind of hungry for these really good arguments on both sides to be matched against one another. Um, I always, you know, think back to like UK, I think to like the UK and, and the parliamentary system where, you see them standing up and they all yeah. just have these amazing arguments. So they just kind of yell at each other at these, but they're really well thought out. They're practiced. They're just fantastic speakers. And I was, you know, when I compare it to what happens on the Hill, it's like, <laughs> you've got someone making a great argument and then the camera on C-SPAN spans out and you Nobody's see it, there. Like empty. <laughs> it's just for the, for the one-liners on, on CNN or Fox News that night. So it's, it's a little disappointing. I think we're missing that, that rigorous debate. Um, yeah, that we, we are, you know, I, I do love our Madisonian system. I love the separation of powers. I wouldn't mm -hmm. want to move in the direction of a parliamentary system. Oh, no, absolutely but, not. Well, the one thing I do love about parliament is that they genuinely debate questions. And we yeah. just don't do that in our legislative houses in the United States. And that's a shame. Um, yeah, no, it is a shame. Um, so let's go back to so academic freedom on campuses. So what are some, to what extent, I'm curious from your experiences and what you've seen, um, what extent are colleges and universities attempting to silence and punish faculty um, who dis who dis express dis uh, differing viewpoints um, that go against the, the grain? What have you seen? Uh, my big worry uh, from what I see is administrative cowardice or cravenness. Hmm. It's not that the administration is out to get the dissenters necessarily. Here's what happened, Charisse. Some student or some poor professor says, quote, the wrong thing. Mm. speaks his mind uh, or says the right thing or what's considered the right thing, but says it in the wrong way, you know, says Eskimo instead of Inuit or what have you, or doesn't say something, mouth some slogan, like it's a loyalty test hmm. that we're all now expected uh, to mouth. Right. And then what happens is a mob forms, mm -hmm. a mob of students, other faculty members, 
can even be a physical mob demonstrating and so forth, but often it's an online, a Twitter mob or a online social media mob. And then the craven cowardly administrators get all wobbly and they're worried because now pressure is being brought on them to discipline this so-called racist or homophobe or whatever they have categorized the poor victim. Uh, and then under that pressure, they cave in and launch an investigation, mm -hmm. punishing the guy for speaking his mind, you know, saying what's on his mind, saying what he believes. Um, very often the poor victim, not having been through this before, being absolutely terrified, concerned for his family and so forth, will make the mistake of immediately capitulating himself and just apologizing and say, oh, it was so yeah. wrong and, you know, subjecting himself to a, a Maoist style struggle session and, and Stalinist yeah. re-education and, yeah. and the whole thing, which is terrible. Uh, he, he becomes part of the problem now. <laughs> he's not just a victim, he's, he's, part of the, he's part of the problem. But what we need are administrators. Uh, we, we, we do have some examples. We, we saw this in the case of President Zimmer at the University of Chicago when a mob formed against a professor there who just say, nope, you know, you can, you can howl all you want at me. You can threaten. But, you know, this is the University of Chicago. We respect freedom of speech. We respect academic freedom. And we're not going to do anything to anybody right. for speaking his mind. Uh, and then pretty soon that it's over. I mean, when they do stand up, when administrators do stand up to the howling mob, they will in the end uh, prevail. Um, something else that concerns me is that when someone is victimized in that way in academia, again, whether it's a student or a faculty member or a staff member, it's happened to staff members. Yeah, this is something I wanted to bring up. Show yeah, at, sure. uh, at uh, uh, Smith College. Uh, when it happens, other people in the university community, instead of rallying around them, even the people who know this is wrong and contrary to the university's own principles, instead of rallying around the person and defending the person, they flee. They're, they're worried that if they say anything in support of the person, they will be the next victim. I don't know if you've ever seen, uh, I love to watch these, uh, these animal shows, these video, these National Geographic uh, shows, they're great. And uh, if you've ever seen them, perhaps you've seen the, some of the ones where they show lions hunting prey. Right. And the lionesses do all the hunting, the, lion, the male lion, he just sits back and waits till they do the kill. And then he comes in and gets first dibs, but you know, that, that lay that aside. But you see the lionesses hunting the prey and they creep up and they creep up and creep up. And then they seem to focus in on a victim. It might be a young member of the herd. It might be one with a broken leg or whatever. Mm -hmm. And then the lead lioness pounces and all the lions come in. And then if it turns out to be a herd of zebras, let's say, you see all the zebras just fly in every different direction and they leave the poor victim to be devoured mm -hmm. by the lions. Right. But the same lion herd, if you watch these shows, if it attacks what turn out to be a group of elephants and it tries to say, you know, got a baby elephant, the elephants, instead of fleeing, mm -hmm. they circle around the victim or the, the one who's supposed to be the victim. Right. And, and some of the members of the herd, like some of the adolescent males who are still with the herd, will actually charge out against the lions. And, you know, they'll just keep pushing the lions back and the lions will try again. And after six or seven tries, finally the, the, the elephants... Uh, win and the lions just skulk away. And, and uh, the way I see it, 
academic people, students as well as faculty, for too long have been content to be zebras. Yeah. And it's time for us to become elephants. Yeah. There should be nobody who's under attack who isn't promptly and effectively and loudly defended by all of us who believe in the mission of universities as truth-seeking institutions and therefore understand the importance of academic freedom. Yeah, and this is definitely something I wanted to bring up is um, this new organization at um, House Out of Princeton on the Alliance, uh, the Academic Freedom Alliance, um, and you kind of helped start that. And if you want to talk a little bit about that and kind of what it entails, and also just kind of, I you mentioned this um, about staff members on campus. This is also like a really big issue that no one is really talking about at all. And that is, um, you know, it's not just professors under attack. It's not just students. There are thousands of staff on college campuses that are beholden to these, um, the woke ideological mobs and as well. And they have to, for example, host and participate in these diversity education um, trainings and these mandated trainings as, as much as professors do. So they are also under attack as well. And they have less resources and less stature to, to challenge the school. You but, are yeah. so right. You are so right, Charisse. And, and, and uh, it really falls to us on the faculty and especially tenured faculty like myself, uh, most especially the senior faculty, people, again, like myself who have endowed chairs and things like that at major universities. It right. really should be our responsibility to be first in line to defend the staff. Yeah. When the staff are subjected to these mandatory re-education things, uh, you know, where they are indoctrinated or forced to, to behave as if they've been indoctrinated, I mean, we should be the first standing up for their uh, their rights. I mean, many of these people are low paid employees. They don't have tenure, obviously. They can be fired at any moment. They're at will employees. Um, they don't have big incomes. They can't afford lawyers. Uh, if we don't defend them, who will? Right. So it's up to us uh, to defend them. And as I think, you know, I try to practice what I preach about that. When it comes to uh, academics, we have established uh, we founded the Academic Freedom Alliance, which uh, was launched a few months ago uh, with an initial group of 200 professors, a uh, large group of us from Princeton. Um, we were the original instigators of the idea. But uh, the 200 plus include professors from all over the country and from across the ideological spectrum. There are as many people on the left as on the right, and we have a big That's group of unclassifiable people or centrist uh, uh, people, but all of whom are committed to free speech and to the core principle of the Academic Freedom Alliance, which is actually Article 5 of the NATO Treaty, <laughs> a principle that says an attack on one will be treated as an attack on all. This is to solve the zebras problem. Yeah, yeah. We're all pledged that we will stand for the academic freedom and the free speech rights and so forth of anybody who's under attack, whether we agree with him or not. If we're on the left and it's on the guy on the right, we're going to defend him. If we're on the right, it's the guy on the left, we're going to uh, defend them. That's what we have pledged to do. And we've also raised some money for a legal defense uh, fund to make sure that people who are unfairly attacked, whose academic freedom is uh, under threat or has been uh, violated, will have the resources they need to um, uh, fight back uh, in courts of law, holding universities to their, in the case of private universities, contractual obligations to respect academic freedom. And in the case of state universities, not only contractual, but also constitutional obligations to uh, respect freedom of speech. Uh, for the moment, Charisse, uh, the Academic Freedom Alliance is a by invitation organization. We are hoping to move uh, eventually to be a by application uh, organization. Uh, 
Uh, the founding membership has now been doubled. So we had 200 plus founding members. We're now well over 400 um, members. We're adding members gradually since we do take on some financial responsibility when it comes to um, providing resources for legal defense. We need to be careful not to grow faster than we can afford right. to uh, uh, to, uh, to grow. Uh, but we're trying to grow as, as fast as we responsibly and prudently can so that we can protect as many people uh, as we possibly can. But if you sign up, if you're an academic and, you, and you're invited and you join the Academic Freedom Alliance, you, you can't just be a free rider. Uh, you, right. Your responsibility is to stand up for the victim when the victim is somebody other than you and to stand up for the victim even when the victim is somebody who's saying things you radically disagree with. Right, absolutely. And so kind of looking ahead, um, so we've got the AFA um, and I'm sure there's gonna be additional organizations that are kind of popping up to try to defend professors um, and students' rights on campus and academic, like enforcing academic freedom. Um, but until then, until we actually win that fight, um, I find it very disconcerting to just see, you know, there's a serious lack of courage, oh. um, both on like the university side, the, the faculty side, but then also the student side. Um, and it's, you know, it makes me wonder and kind of, uh, you know, I, I worry to think about the future of our leaders um, as these students graduate and become leaders of companies and organizations and, and businesses and, and in government um, and, and kind of don't really have that example to call back to in their university experience of when they saw a professor kind of stand up for what they believed in, kind of like this courageous behavior. Um, and it also makes you wonder what effect the lack of courage for professors to kind of speak up on various issues has on the intellectual curiosity of the students. You know, if the, if the students aren't being exposed to ideas that do question the norm or the mainstream, mainstream thought, um, then why would the students, if, you know, if they're not hearing it from the professors, then why would they ever think to do it either? And so obviously they can think for them, themselves, but you know, the, the professors really are there to, to essentially educate, right? So it's a kind of, set that example for them. So what are your thoughts on, on that? Uh, well, Sharice, uh, can I give you some good news and some bad news? <laughs> sure. Uh, do you want the good news first or the bad news first? Uh, let's start with the, the, the bad news and then we'll- The we'll bad news. with the good news. Bad news. <laughs> yeah. The bad news is that cowardice is contagious. Right. Yeah. And the good news, of course, is that courage is also contagious. Yes. What we Absolutely. need are some people exemplifying it, exhibiting it, showing it, practicing it. Um, once that gets started in either direction, there's no uh, stopping it. But we need the people who will, on the side of courage, stand up and start exemplifying a little bit of it. And of course, that's what the people who founded the Academic Freedom Alliance are, are doing and are, and are pledged to do. But we need, we need more. And it's got to happen among students as well. I have so much admiration, Cherise. I have such wonderful students. <laughs> Here at Princeton, I've got some students. They are out of this world and so courageous. Uh, the founders of our student organization called the Princeton Open Campus Coalition, which began back in 2015, and the ones who are leading it uh, uh, today, incredibly courageous young men uh, and, and women. And then, of course, in the larger uh, intellectual world, there are people of great courage and commitment. Uh, the folks at FIRE, Foundation for Individual Rights in Education, Greg Lukianoff, uh, Robert Shibley, yeah. uh, people working on the legal side, my former student, Samantha uh, Harris, uh, for example, uh, um, 
you know, just doing fantastic work, very courageous, self-sacrificial, you know, somebody like uh, Greg or Robert or, or Samantha, you know, they could be, they could be earning big money at big law firms, you know, doing corporate work and litigation. Now, in, 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 instead, they're, they're living on much smaller uh, salaries in order to defend, you know, students and faculty members and others who've been wronged in, in academia. And I have enormous admiration for uh, for people like that. Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, there's, it is encouraging, you're absolutely right, to see more and more folks stand up, especially when students start their own organizations on campus that to defend free speech. Um, you know, somebody, somebody else uh, and another organization that does it, and of course there's your own organization, <laughs> and there's FAIR, right. but another one that I really admire and is just doing so much good is Heterodox Academy under its great leader, John oh, yeah. Knight. Jonathan Haidt, he came out before anybody else did in the, in the academic world and really confronted his peers with the need to honor academic freedom and to do something about the collapse of viewpoint diversity. I mean, yes. it took a lot of courage for somebody to, uh, to do that, and he did it. Absolutely. Yeah, I've, uh, Heterodox, I've been to a couple of their conferences, and it is always so impressive to actually see the cohort of faculty members that they're able to gather, um, because normally you wouldn't see that many folks on the left and the right getting together yeah. um, at a conference. So um, it is encouraging to see things like that, for sure. Um, and you mentioned the student organization on, on campus at Princeton, um, that, that kind of thing. When you see students stand up, to, that's when you're like, okay, that gives you that silver lining or that, you know, that, that glimmer of, of, of hope um, and that, you know, there is a generation that is going to try to address these issues and they'll continue forward. Um, and like you said, their courage will hopefully be contagious. Um, so to, to kind of end us here, I want to, I want to ask you, like, what do you see kind of for the future of academic freedom in this country? Um, and we mentioned some kind of optimistic um, optimistic examples, but um, what advice can you give to others who do want to speak up on campus and who, who do feel like their speech is chilled, um, whether they're faculty members or students, um, you know, other than just kind of like, hey, start an organization, what kind of advice like in class and in writing and in their private studies would you give them um, to kind of help them break, break from that, what they're, the box that they're stuck in on their campus? Well, the first piece of, piece of advice I would give to students and faculty uh, is to be courageous. Yeah. Aristotle taught us a long time ago that the way vice and, uh, sorry, virtue and vice both work is as follows. You become vicious by doing vicious things. You become virtuous by doing virtuous things. How do you become courageous? By doing courageous acts. Right. How do you become a coward? by yielding to cowardly impulses and doing cowardly things. And it's the same with all the, uh, all the other virtues. Um, uh, one thing I remind students is that uh, a lot of things, just about everything that you value, you can lose or it can be taken from you. Right. Um, your reputation, through no fault of your own, uh, wrongdoers can steal your reputation, your professional opportunities, your future educational opportunities, those would be taken from your money. You're, you can lose your money. You can bad investment or somebody can steal it. Um, you can lose your family a lot. I mean, the, just think of all the things dear to you or me that can be lost through no fault of your own. But there's one thing that you have 
that is, or at least should be, profoundly valuable to you that no one can take away from you, and that is your integrity. If you lose it, there's only one possible explanation for how you lost it. You compromised yourself and gave it up. Right. So hang on to your integrity. And that, that really does mean, that does, is going to require in the current milieu, showing a bit of courage. It doesn't mean you need to be reckless. It doesn't mean you need to pick every fight that you could possibly pick. But it does mean that you need to find occasions when you really do speak your mind. You take some risks. You exemplify some courage. You pay the cost if necessary. But you built yourself. You've reinforced and, and, and built up yourself as a person of dignity and integrity. And that's worth more than going to Harvard Law. I mean, I've been to Harvard Law School. I can tell it's great. It's fun. It's great to have that credential and everything. But it's between that and integrity. I take integrity every time, you know, being a partner for Wayne and Moore, Goldman Sachs. I know those great things. A lot of my students go on to those uh, sort, sorts of things. Secondary, not important, really nice. But what really matters is integrity, honesty, dignity, right. virtues like courage. When you think, what should my future be like? Mm -hmm. You shouldn't just be thinking income, status, wealth, influence, power. It should be, what kind of person am I? Yes. Am exactly. I a person my grandparents would be proud of? Exactly. I might be, end up being a coal miner. Both my grandfathers were coal miners. Might end up being a coal miner, but I could be a person of integrity as opposed to a person with no integrity who's drawn $3 million a year as a Goldman Sachs partner. Not, not that there aren't great Goldman Sachs partners and pe people of integrity. I'm just saying that all that money and status is of no worth at all. Right, much rather be a coal miner with integrity than be a rich guy, powerful guy, influential guy, uh, but lacking in integrity with no real courage. You know, Somebody who has sacrificed his own dignity in order to get status and money. Right. Where do you see the future of, of academic freedom going? Um, I radically believe in the contingency of history. Uh, here again, I am the opposite of a progressive. I don't believe in an inevitable history. I don't think that history is just waiting to you know, happen and it's going to go a certain way and there's nothing we can do about it and we're just actors on the stage. Everything depends on what we do. Nothing's written in stone. I can't tell you what it'll be. Mm -hmm. It could go either way. It really could. And it all depends on concrete acts, choices, decisions, made by you and me, by real flesh and blood human beings who either will or won't speak their minds, who either will or won't challenge the status quo, who either will or won't capitulate to the dogmas uh, and fall into line. Uh, now, if, if some of us, doesn't have to be all of us, I wish it were all of us, but if even some of us stand up and do the right thing and start that chain reaction, if the courage becomes contagious, and it will, if somebody starts practicing it, then I see a bright future for academic freedom. I think see better things ahead, mm -hmm. but that's not written in stone that it's going to happen. You know, the, the arc of history is long and we don't know where it goes, yeah. but it's up to us. No, yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, well, that will wrap it up for us today. Um, this is Well Said, a bi-weekly live show where I interview policy experts, commentators, academics, students, and activists on subjects such as higher education, free speech, related topics in American culture and policy. You can share this episode on Facebook and YouTube. Also, like I mentioned before, we have podcasts now with Apple, Spotify, Anchor. Download on any of the podcast apps. Give us a five-star rating if you like what you heard today. Um, otherwise, I'm Cherise Trump and Professor George, that was well said. Thank you so much.
Thanks. Bye-bye, Therese.